This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. We are all 100% going to die someday edition. It's Wednesday, May 21st, 2014. And on today's program, we're going to talk about Penny Dreadful, the lush new gothic horror show on Showtime. Also Chipotle, bringing literature from Jonathan Safran Foer, Toni Morrison, and the like to the masses on its cups and bags. And finally, net neutrality and the internet fast lane, how the FCC's proposed new rules will change culture going forward. Steve is once again on book leave upstate, so we wish him Godspeed. Meanwhile, joining me today is Slate Film critic Dana Stevens. Hi, Dana. Hello, Julia. And also our culture critic, June Thomas. Hey, Julia Turner. Hi, June. Thanks for sitting in today. Thank you for having me. It's been too long. It has. Before we dig into our topics, I want to remind our listeners about Slate Plus. Slate Plus is Slate's new membership program, and it offers people who sign up a host of perks, and there are a particular set of perks for podcast listeners, a.k.a. you guys, which means you get to listen to ad-free versions of our show. You get a bonus segment of our show every week, so that's extra podcast. It's kind of like those paper towel rolls now with 33% more sheets. You've got now with 33% more podcasts, because we'll give you an extra segment if you sign up for Slate Plus. Uh, and also, we have a complete database of everything we've ever endorsed that's searchable, which is something you guys have been asking for for a while. Um, you also get discounted event tickets, discounted merchandise. If you sign up for an annual membership, you get a really cool mug from Jonathan Adler. It's 50 bucks for a year or 5 bucks a month. And you can go to slate.com slash culture plus to find details and sign up. And if you use that URL, we get credit. So you can... You can show your loyalty to the Culture Fest as opposed to all those other inferior Slate podcasts and products by signing up at slate.com slash Culture Fest. I, I mean, yeah, the Culture Fest is awesome. But I just want to say the Double X Gab Fest is pretty good, too. <laughs> oh, shoot. I've invited the enemy within. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with one URL or another, please sign up for Slate Plus and check out our bonus segments. And just a preview of today's, we have a question from Matthew Stabile, Stabile who wants us to tell the world, if we could live at any place... And at any time in human history, where would we choose? So we will answer that question as part of our bonus segment for Plus members only. Okay, we're going to start right in with Penny Dreadful. This is the new Showtime show, much hyped, from John Logan, who's a super fancy screenwriter, I think is what it technically says on his business card. (laughs) He wrote Gladiator, Hugo, he wrote Skyfall, he signed up to write the next couple of James Bond movies. 
and the show is basically a gothic mashup set in 1890s London with a mix of melange of vampires and I don't think we've seen any mummies yet, but there's a Frankenstein character. I'm sure the mummies are coming. They're just unwrapping. <laughs> the mummies they're, are coming. They're unwrapping themselves slowly <laughs> to enter the, enter the milieu. Before we get into our responses to the show, though, let's just listen to a quick clip. So, you're the explorer. I've made one or two modest discoveries. There's a Murray Mountain in the eastern regions of the Belgian Congo with the Fjordovland vicinity. Not the tallest mountain, to be sure, but not the smallest either. Mm. I've spent most of my life in Africa beholding wonders. I was surprised to get your note. You seem a man who holds his secrets fast. I wasn't going to come. But you couldn't resist. When you see a river, you must follow it to its source. No matter the perils, no matter those comrades that fall along the way. You must know how things work. You must unlock. You were dissatisfied always. Are you dissatisfied? I'm seeking. What? Perhaps the same as you. Mm. I seek the truth. June. Yes. Tell us, what did you think of Penny Dreadful? Well, I'm a bit torn because I got a chance to talk with John Logan, and he was one of those people who you talk to him and you just think, oh my God, what a brilliant, brilliant guy. I want to watch everything he's ever created. I just think this guy could be my guru. (laughs) And then I watched the show and there were some moments that I thought were just very beautiful, um, which we can get to later. But for the most part, I just kind of found it dark and mushy. And I'm I'm also not a gothic person. So, you know, I feel like I I have to allow for that, uh, give some allowance for that. But I just, I didn't really know what was going on most of the time. And, and I'm not really sure that I cared all that much. Now I feel terribly guilty about saying that because I found that the actors, there's some really likable actors in it. Ava Green, who's very beautiful and, and very sort of commanding in this show. Uh, there's Josh Hartnett, who I've never liked very much, who actually like feels like he's really being a character who I want to know more about. He plays a kind of American sharpshooter who's off in... London in the 1890s and so there were there were more people like that who I kind of wanted to like but I just I I really had there was a confusion problem for me what about you I I'm not sure I was confused about the events of the show but I was confused about why the show took itself so seriously I mean we've had and I'm also confused about whether we really need more vampires at this stage in human history like we already have True Blood. True Blood is a show that has mashed up vampires and werewolves and fairies. And I stopped watching it that season, but I'm sure <laughs> they added somebody new every season in a, you know, campy Louisiana drawl and took the mythology very seriously, but also just had a lot of fun with the spatter and the gore and the, you know, oh, aren't werewolves sexy and aren't vampires sexy too? I mean, it right. just, it was fun. It was a fun show and lurid. And this show um, takes its monsters very, very seriously. I mean, it almost feels like within Gothic before Gothic became campy. Right. And I'm confused about why that is an interesting thing to do at our particular moment. Dana, what did you make of it? 
Well, I mean, I will say that there are different kinds of vampires in this show. There are creatures that seem to feast on the blood of others, but they're not quite vampires as we know them. I mean, this is definitely working in that same zone of true blood, as you described, of the, you know, mashup of different genres and different creatures together. But it is working in something a little different, something I'm not sure is that interesting to me either, but it's its own thing. There's like Egyptology in there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's it's trying to be more maybe historically um, accurate, not not obviously not with the vampires and the guys <laughs> with, with hieroglyphics emblazoned on their skin. But I mean, in terms of um, the framing things in the way of thinking of the time, for example, um, mediums and spiritism comes in. The Eva Green character is is somebody who runs seances and reads people's cards. And there seems to be some attempt on John Logan's part to kind of project the viewer's mind into the mindset of Victorian times and how people experienced reality. Did, did you guys experience that at all? Yeah, I definitely think he's extremely interested in that period and he wants us to be too. I mean, one of the things that captured me was this focus on science and experimentation. And you did get that feeling of being in a time where so much is changing and so many new things are just kind of bubbling to the surface and people are examining the water to see what it is that's causing it to bubble. That felt very interesting to me, but that's kind of outside of the narrative almost. Um, This Egyptologist character that you mentioned, um, Sir Ferdinand Lyle, I believe his name is. And that's Again, a very interesting character to me because it's a very coded gay character. I mean, John Logan, the creator of the show, is openly gay. And one of the things that I found very interesting when I talked to him was, for him, this is very almost self-consciously, I don't know what you call it, an allegory of gayness, you know, the the whole part of, of Frankenstein's monster of like something that people recoil from is something that he really relates to. You know, he, he kind of likens himself to a monster, you know, in that people... Especially when he was younger, would see him and and just kind of just be repulsed by him, and so he really kind of res- he really relates and responds to that, and I find that interesting too. But then, you know, this Sir Ferdinand Lyle character who is also an attempt to show that in the eighteen nineties it wasn't cool to be gay, that he you know is is kind of a, he's a fop, he's he's a figure of fun, but he's also someone who is extremely knowledgeable. He has all of this sort of occult knowledge. And that's very interesting to me. But I also, I don't know, it's like the the way that the story is set up is of being, of information being withheld. And that's very common on television, but as a way of kind of stretching a story over eight or 10 episodes to keep you coming back because you want to find out what, you're really just not telling me things that you're going to tell me eight hours later. And I find that somewhat frustrating. Well, this is the thing of deep mythology that we've been talking about for the last few episodes, it seems like, because so many shows are using that now. Mm-hmm. This kind of X-Files originated you know, idea that you seed certain ideas at the beginning of a yep. season, and they might develop mysteriously throughout that whole season and even the next season. And honestly, to me as a viewer, it just kind of makes me tired. Like the number of occult mysteries that we now have to keep track of yep. after just the pilot of Penny Dreadful is, is a little overwhelming for me as a viewer, and I'm not sure I care enough to stick with all of them. Also, we haven't mentioned this yet, but the show is extremely gory. Is True Blood this gory? I mean, there's like baby carnage lying around in every room they go in. It's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I like baby carnage as a decor element. (laughs) I mean, that's taking it to the next level. It's past the antler lady in True Detective. We're now on to dismembered babies as just a thing that's there in television shows. It's definitely, True Blood was pretty gory, but yes, this this has a slight, well, it's just when it's somber baby carnage as opposed to like <laughs> lighthearted baby, baby carnage, it has a different tone. I want to get to actually the look and feel of the show in just a minute, but I wanted to circle back quickly to your point about 
his historiographic interest in the 1890s uh, and, and Logan's fascination with the time. I do. I agree. That's the most interesting part of it, to see how ideas of science are coming into play here and to see the fascination with the occult. But to me, as someone who does not actually believe in the occult or vampires, I would be more interested in a show where there weren't real vampires and there weren't real spirits and it was sort of about... It, it seems like a show without the magic in it could actually be about those ideas and how they were intertwined and warring and fascinating to to Victorian England, which would be really interesting. But once you put the vampires in, then of course there was spiritism because there were spirits, you know? Like it takes the interest out of why there was this cultural fascination at the time in a world small as vampire. <laughs> um, but I do want to come back to the look and feel of the show because I feel like we've been sadly unmoved by this very thoughtful work by clearly a a smart man. But the one thing that did move me was the way it looked. I think it was the most beautiful hour of television I've seen in a long time. And I'm recapping Mad Men this season, which I think tends to be a very beautiful television show. The director for the first two episodes was Juan Antonio Bayona, whose work I hadn't seen before, but who won some acclaim for directing The Impossible, that controversial tsunami movie. He also Um, made a great horror movie called The Orphanage. I haven't seen The Impossible. I haven't been able to bring myself because everyone says it's so grueling to watch. But The Orphanage is a great, creepy little low-budget horror movie. And it just the, the... composition of the shots, the attention to smoke curling out of Eva Green's mouth, the light in the chamber where Frankenstein and his monster are communing, even uh, the Frankenstein characters like fantastic red eyeliner. The The whole look and feel of it is really beautiful and sumptuous. And so it creates, again, you're sort of like locked in this velvet coffin, right? It creates the sense that you're in this very rich important, careful space where so much thought has been placed. And then it's just fake Egypt myths and vampires and snoozeroo. Seems like so much wasted talent. I must say I didn't quite take as much notice as you did, Julia, of the decor, which is on me. Uh, But I'm very struck that these days so many shows, and this is certainly one of them, are really British or European shows that are made American by maybe sometimes even one actor. I mean, I think Josh Hartnett well, and Reeve Carney, who plays Dorian Gray, might be the only American actors. This is a co-production between Showtime and Sky, uh, the British, uh, you know, kind of premium cable or premium uh, satellite network. Um, and it's a very European production to me. I mean, it looks very European. Wait, are you saying that European shows look better than American shows? I'm just saying they look different. I actually disagree. I mean, I think you, you know, something like The Hour on the BBC, which we loved and was tragically canceled, Mm -hmm. looked really good. But I felt like you could see the seams a little (laughs) bit more than in American television where they'll really just spend the money to to trick something out. And this seemed so lush to me. And it wasn't, I, I guess I was talking a bunch about the production design, but I felt that the direction was really terrific. I can't remember if I mentioned it earlier, but I am so taken with the scene where uh, Victor Frankenstein brings forth his creature. I mean, it I was agree. So, At the end of the, the yeah. first episode, it's a beautiful scene. It's so beautiful and so moving. And and even the though, connection between them is not something you ever see in in the Frankenstein myth. It's not a moment of terror. It's really a moment of tenderness. Ten- so tender, so loving, and and just kind of relief. You sort of feel that they've, you know, it, loneliness is over, and it, it's very beautiful. It's very touching. And even though I haven't watched a lot of horror movies, you know, we've all seen. Frankenstein create, you know, whether it's in the, the satirical versions. And that was something different, which is an achievement to, to do something differently, you know, that isn't making fun of it, that isn't changing the story. I mean, it's pretty faithful to Shelley, but also 
new and different and really beautiful. But that made me wish that maybe Frankenstein or just one of these resuscitated myths had been the focus of the show, because then we have a couple minutes with, with them, and then we have to move on to Jack the Ripper and Dorian Gray and the Spiritist and every single possible signifier of 1890s-ness that there is. Yeah. I mean, I suppose as the show goes on, it'll drill into each of these storylines a bit further, and so perhaps the patient among us will stick with it. June, I feel like you have the most patience for mediocre television, (laughs) or the most interest. Are you going to stick with it and watch it? I think I will mostly for the sake of John Logan, um, and also to kind of educate myself, because I don't, as I've said, I don't know a lot about the the gothic genre, maybe given how so much is mashed up and, and shoved in here, that I'll actually also get an education. All right, will you come back and tell us if it suddenly gets amazing and we need to start watching? You know it. Dana, I'm just going to assume you're not watching the rest. Uh, the only thing that would bring me back to this, honestly, is Eva Green, or Ava. I'm not sure how she pronounces her name, but I've loved her ever since I saw her in Bertolucci's The Dreamers long ago. She looks incredible in period costume. She brings this amazing amount of sort of um, presence to this character that's, I think, kind of underwritten and doesn't really have that much to do except swan around in incredible gowns. But there's just something about Eva Green that's sort of perverse and a little bit twisted and dark in, in everything she does. Yeah, she looks a little bit crazy, and it was actually, there's a, the in the seance scene in the second episode, instead of just looking beautiful and elusive, she gets to go, like, buck wild. <laughs> yes. Oh, maybe I will watch on It's then. a fun piece of acting. She's like clawing the table and tearing her hair out and it's it's a showpiece of the sort that pretty ladies don't always get to do mm-hmm. all right well the show is penny dreadful it's on showtime uh, we've got some rousing lukewarmness here <laughs> but it's definitely worth taking a look at for sheer beauty and sheer evergreen havingness all right onward now is the moment in our show when we hear from our sponsor dana who do we have today the Culture Gab Fest is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com, the leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment. They have more than 150,000 titles, which you can play on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And Audible has a special offer for GabFest listeners. You can get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up here, audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. So you have over 150,000 titles to choose from, of course, but what we've been doing on the GabFest these last few months is creating the Culture GabFest bucket list, which is our list of books that you must read or listen to before you die. And June, you have a suggestion this week connected to our topics? Well, yeah. Since Penny Dreadful is obsessed with that world of gothic literature, what about Frankenstein by Mary Shelley? And Audible has several versions, but one is read by Dan Stevens of Downton Abbey fame. He uh, got out of that car and he went and he recorded (laughs) the audiobook version of Frankenstein. So that would be a fine way of uh, getting to experience a classic of gothic literature. Oh, and Frankenstein is such a fantastic book. Have either of you read it recently? Uh, No, not for years, but I remember loving it. I mean, that's not my preferred genre, as we've just discussed, but I love sort of the darkness and grimness and pathos of the relationship. And anyway, it's it's a great read. And it's very intellectually demanding, that book. There's so much philosophy and literature and history packed into it. You know, there's these long periods when the monster is teaching himself to speak where he's basically quoting Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I mean, it's sort of like the history of thinking about pedagogy, you know, all lived through the life of this this innocent monster becoming an educated man. So you can find Frankenstein read by Dan Stevens and 150,000 other wonderful books at audiblepodcast.com. And your membership will also include a free subscription to either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. So give it a try. Use our URL so Audible knows that you're signing up through the Culture Gap Fest. That's audiblepodcast.com slash culturefest. All right. For our next topic, we're going to be discussing 
cup literature for possibly the first time in the history of the Culture Fest because I think this may be the first time that cup literature has existed. I am talking, of course, about Cultivating Thought, which is a new program from the folks at Chipotle, the burrito chain that would like to be known as the burrito chain with a brain and a social conscience, or at least it certainly seems that way from their marketing, not least this program, which I think was the brainchild of Jonathan Safran for the acclaimed author and um, ethical foodie pulling together a super A-list group of writers to write very, very short little bits of fiction, comedy, nonfiction, to go on their cups and bags with the idea that the masses, while munching on burrito bowls, can also imbibe art. This came in for a ton of mockery on the internet, some claims that perhaps the authors who were participating were selling out, and... I wanted to discuss it with the two of you because it seems like there are many rich texts here. I want to actually dig into the texts themselves. But before we do that, I want just like the ballpark gut reaction is a writer who writes a 300-word quote-unquote story for the side of a Chipotle cup, a sellout. Dana. A priori, I would say no, although I would prefer this program if there was some sort of charity angle and if all the writers were donating their profits to some literacy group or something like that rather than just kind of raking in the bucks from Chipotle. But that said, putting literature on cups seems like a perfectly fine initiative to me. June? I have always had that gut reaction of when musicians have allow their songs or sell their songs for ads, you know, TV commercial, that that's selling out. And I didn't have that response in this particular case, I had some other responses, but I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't offended by that. And I think maybe that's because I, too, am a writer and I would love to get some books for writing a very, very short text and getting it on a cup in a bag. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe my wish that everybody don't donate their, their proceeds to charity is just my jealousy that I'm not on this <laughs> gravy train and all these people on it have so much gravy already. It's a salsa train. <laughs> it's not a gravy train, Tina. It's a guacamole train. Yeah, I well, uh, all right, you guys are not going to let me have this fight with you because I don't actually really believe in selling out. I think if you're an artist, you got to take your bucks where you can, and it does not seem to me that there's grave harm in this. I also think one thing that's distinct here is that the works, at least as you encounter them, do not appear to be excerpts of larger freestanding existing pieces of art, right? I think one objection to putting Tangled Up in Blue in a Victoria's Secret ad, which is the classic example um, of when Bob Dylan appeared blurrily in a Victoria's Secret ad with like tarted up models and push up bras. I think in the early aughts, everyone was like, Egad, my eyes, no, um, and thought that some, you know, icon of 60s free thinking had been forever lost. And perhaps that was the case. But to me, it was like, sure, Bob Dylan, like, make your money. The strength of Tangled Up in Blue is impregnable. It cannot be tainted by a few tosses of some blow dried hair. Uh, you know, so so I've never had the problem with that, but I think some people do think that actual works of art can be contaminated when they're bent toward commerce. In this case, these ten august figures are taking undisclosed but presumably somewhat massive t- sums of cash uh, and producing freestanding works designed for the cup or the bag. And I could actually see thinking of that as an interesting writing challenge. Like, what do you write to be read? in the eight minutes that it takes to consume a Chipotle burrito, you know, like it. And, and I think some of the writers pull it off and others do not. Right. Right. But I think the cups need a better editor. I don't think that there's a very consistent editorial sensibility across the entire cup series. I mean, I, what, the thing that I was comparing this to in terms of the civic appearance of, of literature in front of your face when you're just living <laughs> your life is the uh, the poetry in the subway, which mm-hmm. is great. Right. What do they call it? Um 
Poetry in Motion. Poetry in Motion, exactly. And, so. and Poetry in Motion disappeared a few years ago for several years. The city just basically cut it off because they couldn't afford, you know, to put poems up in the subway anymore. And I really missed it. And I'm really happy it's back. And I feel like whoever chooses those poems chooses them extremely well, matches them really well with art. And you sort of know when you look at a subway poem that you're going to get a certain standard of quality and a certain kind of range of, of experience. And that was not at all true to me with the, with the Chipotle Cup Fair. It varied very widely. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was a completely, it was like a hodgepodge. It's like taking all the different kinds of hot sauce and putting them in one burrito, <laughs> right? So I, I'm curious, let's get into some specifics. Which cup do you think was the least successful, Dana? Hmm. Well, as much as I like Judd Apatow as a kind of impresario and a, and a gatherer of comedy talent, I felt that his cup was very lazy. And he essentially <laughs> admitted as much in the little interview, you know, on the Chipotle site, you can go read an interview with each writer and then the text of their cup. And he essentially said, I didn't really think very much about wrote, what I wrote on my cup. I have it. I wrote it quickly and didn't think too much about it before or after. Or during. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very clear in reading the cup. I agree. So that felt very tossed off. Sarah Silverman's cup had some nice pithy observations, but it read to me like a series of tweets. I felt like the right editor could have worked with her to maybe have a more through-composed idea. Yeah, let's read a few of those. Behind every great big bully is a great big bully. People in cults don't call their cults cults. Let's not wait for the apocalypse or an alien attack to love each other, y'all. You don't have to do what's expected of you. Just a quick reminder, other people exist. It bothers me that I'm not your entire world. We are all 100% going to die someday. See, I think this was the most successful of these efforts because what is this for? You know, if you, George Saunders, Tony Morrison, I think we can admit that Tony Morrison is a fine writer, but if I did not know that that bag was written by Tony Morrison, I would just have thought that's just some words. Like it's too short of a, an assignment. You can't really get into a narrative. Most of these are just like words. Hers, at least, is something that you can read, that it gets you to think, it maybe gets you to laugh. You can just experience them and then they kind of, you know, you can either consider them in your own mind or you can talk with the person that you're eating with about them. You can say them aloud. They're funny. To me, that's very successful. Uh, Jonathan Safran Foer's I also thought worked, even though it irritated me when I first read it. His is almost like a series of koans, which also kind of has that benefit of you can interact with it. You, it kind of stays with you. You can think about it. You can talk about it. See, I thought that Jonathan Zavrin Fors and Sarah Silverman's were appropriate solutions to what to put in that shorter text on the bag, but not literature. Yes. I felt that they both had the same quality as like the novelty books that you can buy at the checkout counter in Urban Outfitters that are intended to be like brain food for a stoner slumber party where mm -hmm. you're like, whoa, behind every big bully is a big bully. Or let's read a couple of the Jonathan Safran Four ones too. He has, he's sort of got the less pat comedic version and the more, um, you know, philosophical, are you living your life right version. But uh, it's a similar vibe here. Um, what's the kindest thing you almost did? Is your fear of insomnia stronger than your fear of what awoke you? Are bonsai cruel? <laughs> Do you love what you love or just the feeling? You know, like he's, he's it's a similar approach to Sarah Silverman of a succession of thought provoking bits. Mm -hmm. um, but his just seemed kind of pompous and insufferable to me. And guiltifying. Everything Jonathan Safran Foer ever writes seems to me to have the secret subtext I'm better than you. <laughs> I'm better than you because I went and I found a way to put literature on your fast food. So there. 
Um, I mean, there is the kind of larger condescending idea that Jonathan Safran Foer is the white knight of literature bringing bringing edification to the masses. But before we get to that, I just want to quickly shout out George Saunders, who you mentioned, June, who I thought actually successfully created a complete fascinating short story on the side of his I bag. I agree. George Saunders did the best cup and bag text of any of the contributors. And he actually does say in his interview that it was an excerpt from something longer he was writing, a short story or a novel that wasn't working. And so he refashioned it for cup text. But it's written in this strange kind of voice. And as you say, it implies that we're in some kind of dystopic future. And there's a lot packed into those few words. But see, as I agree that as a work of literature, it's the most successful. But as a cup, I'm not so sure. <laughs> because... It, first of all, these, this text is very small, so you read it, sure, I mean, I can still remember that voice, so that's successful. But it doesn't take that long to read, so then you've read your cup, and then you're just going to go, well, that was weird. Whereas, you know, these, I, you know, I'm, I, am, I have no disagreement that the Sarah Silverman, Jonathan Safran Four approach is not literature. His is very portentous, all of that. But at least it lasts. It lasts long enough for your meal. I mean, I don't know. Maybe some people just stuff the burrito right in their face and don't even chew. But, like, it takes me a little bit more time, and I want, I, I need to get my cup's worth. Yeah, and I there's, think, a, there's a lot. There's a lot of burrito to eat. It's true. I am feeling like we're having a very lively conversation about the literature-ish qualities of these cup bag texts. So maybe this is a fine art form. I'm, I feel... Like if we were all eating burritos and then having an argument about these texts that we had read while eating our burritos, that would be a fun thing to do over lunch. So maybe Jonathan Safran Foer is better than us, and he is a white knight who's bringing literature to us and the masses. Do you guys find this project inherently condescending in some way or just fine? Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's, since you called him a white knight, let's also point out one of the biggest and, I, to my mind, the most glaring mistake or flaw in his great plan, which is that there are no Latino writers on these bags and cups. Chipotle is, in theory, a Mexican food chain. Gustavo Arellano had a piece where he pointed out this lack, and one of the people he talked to asked, I think quite pointedly, do you think it ever came up that there are no Latino writers? I mean, do you think that was even... But June, questions. they have Toni Morrison, so they're done. She represents all alterity forever. It's done. <laughs> Are they going to have a second stable of writers go through? Are there going to be ongoing cup assignments? I kind of hope so. I find myself looking kindly on this whole project, Judd Apatow's lazy cup and all. <laughs> I, I would like it if more little fascinating morsels of text appeared in more non-digital spaces in my life. Well, essentially, all boxes containing food should have something fun to read on them, right? I mean, who doesn't sit there at breakfast reading their cereal? box or read their shampoo bottle in the shower. We should just have literature plastered no, on every surface. It's true. I, if I'm ever in a place without something to read, it's mm. it's a travesty. Like I feel a, a, a deep neural panic if there's not something to read. And actually, the, the great advantage of the smartphone to me is that yes. you always have something good to read. But it <clears> stinks <throat> to always have your nose in your phone. And as someone who's read like countless backs of toothpaste tubes and read the ADA warnings and can tell you about the nutrition of every box that's ever been on the table. Like, I will read any object that's in front of me. So the notion of putting more interesting things to read on the corners of those objects, I love it. I just want to point out that this has been the most successful piece of marketing of the 21st century. I mean, Jonathan Safran Foer said that there was no marketing intention in this, you know, and it's true that they don't talk about Chipotle, but we have just talked about Chipotle for a good, what, 10, 15 minutes. Chipotle. Have either of you eaten? I've never even gone into a Chipotle. Oh, my God, it's good. Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah, it yeah. really is. Um, and also, though, I do think we might be causing all kinds of problems for America because we've all agreed that there's just not enough room on these cups and bags. So what? 
Are we, are we going to buy bigger sodas so that we can have longer stories? I think this might be bad for America and bad for Americans. So you think there's going to be a coming obesity epidemic? Epidemic. Oh, dear. All right. All well, led by literature. <laughs> it's all literature's fault. All right. Well, the cultural product we're talking about is Chipotle's Cultivating Thought series now available on its cups and bags. Go buy a burrito and experience some literature or... Uh, if you'd prefer not to, you can just read it on their website, cultivatingthought.com. And you should definitely check out Chipotle's. Good. Yeah. Yeah. It's perfectly serviceable. Um, all right. The marketing segment now concludes, <laughs> and we'll move on to our next topic. <laughs> Joining us for our third segment today is David Auerbach. He's Slate's Bitwise columnist, and he's going to talk to us about net neutrality. Net neutrality, well, it is difficult to define and thus somewhat difficult to cover. But last week, the FCC went forward with some proposed new rulings on how they might regulate this principle going forward. So before we get into what the FCC did last week, David, can you just remind our listeners what is net neutrality and why does it matter? So net neutrality in principle is the idea that uh, internet service providers like Time Warner or Comcast, those that are providing the broadband uh, pipes to your house uh, cannot discriminate between traffic that's going through their networks. That is to say, they can't give preferential treatment to their own traffic. For example, if like Time Warner, they have their own streaming, they have their own streaming services. They can't uh, slow down traffic, say, from Netflix. And the idea here is because this is a carrier of traffic from different parties, different content providers. Network neutrality is important so that they can't become um, sort of brokers that extort money from content providers in order so that they can get preferential treatment and thus, you know, make it much harder for content providers with less money to pay to play. Right. So then what were the rules? What happened last week at the FCC? Well, there's been a long history. And uh, the current chairman, Tom Wheeler, is sort of a very, very sort of centrist Democrat. Uh, and there was, there was concerns about him because he was a lobbyist for the telecom and cable industries for many years. And his initial proposal, which allowed for what, what was, I think, called a fast lane <laughs> as opposed to a slow lane for that content providers could pay for effectively, you know, was a violation of net neutrality. It was saying, well, yeah, you can accept money. ISPs can accept money to give preferential treatment to some content providers. And this created a lot of outrage amongst net neutrality activists saying, well, what are you doing here? What is the point of regulation if you're just going to give them the ability to to discriminate between traffic. And apparently this took Wheeler by surprise. He wasn't expecting that there would be such an outcry. And so the proposal got modified a little to at least leave the door open to reclassifying the, the ISPs as common carriers in the same way that utilities are, like uh, your telephone company, which puts much more uh, ability for the government to regulate and much more onus on the provider not to discriminate between traffic. But for whatever reason, Tom Wheeler doesn't seem to be a fan of that approach. Now, the, com the commission consists of uh, two Republicans and three Democrats. And the two Republicans, of course, won't vote for anything that has any regulation whatsoever. 
Um, Wheeler seems to be uh, somewhere caught in the middle of wanting to give quite a bit of leeway to the cable companies, but he needs those Democrats on his side, and they did vote for this proposal. But the question is what he will have to give to them to get them to vote for the final proposal that's coming up in some months' time. So as I understand it, what happened last week was that we began this 120-day comment period. And I'm wondering, do you think that there will be a lot of comments? Do you think there'll be an outcry? I mean, there seems to be a comparison with the SOPA PIPA, uh, you know, uprising, which which seemed to successfully end a piece of legislation that people agreed would be bad for the Internet. Do you foresee that there will be that kind of uprising? There already is. Uh, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it an uprising, but I believe that tens of thousands of comments have already been submitted to the official public record on this on this proposal. So, I mean, there's a lot of activism going on, and you don't just have, um, say, uh, internet activists of the Aaron Swartz type arguing for this. You also have big content providers like Netflix is terrified. They just paid off Comcast a huge amount because uh, in some ways network neutrality can already be violated. This is a very technical issue because people say, well, how is it that Netflix just paid off Comcast to get faster traffic if network neutrality is still officially in play? One thing that strikes me as different here is with SOPA PIPA, it was an act in Congress, right? And so people could actually call their congressman in the classic mode of citizen action, whereas the the fact that this is a federal commission that the workings of which are slightly more obscure and a public comment period, it's never quite clear exactly what a public comment period does, right? The comments are collected, but it's not like people are <laughs> casting votes. So I think there is a slight sense that maybe it's a little bit more difficult to advocate on this issue. But this issue also seems to me massively important yeah. to all kinds of business and culture and everything that exists on the internet going forward. And so I'm hopeful that people will get involved. Well, um, I mean, there's been, there's been a fair amount of activism. There were protesters who showed up at the FCC meeting. And uh, there's one amusing bit of activism where a small internet service provider, and the name escapes me right now, but what he did was uh, slow down access to all of, to his sites from any FCC.gov address so that he said and he said, well, if you'd like faster service from me, pay me, you know, a million dollars. And he said, this is exactly what can happen under network neutrality. Carriers will have the ability to slow down traffic for any reason whatsoever. And hold content hostage, essentially, is what they would be doing. So I have a question, a rhetorical question about the way this debate's being framed on the other side. It just seems to me so obvious that an open Internet is a, a good thing for all, for commerce, for innovation, for, you know, just sort of fairness of use. So what is the other side saying besides <laughs> all regulation is bad? I mean, what, how is the, is the counter argument being framed? I think, I mean, you have a lot of the standard agitprop about how the market will solve everything. Regulation is bad, therefore regulations will stifle innovation because that's what regulations always do. And they can say, you know, you, have you could have regulatory capture, which ironically seems to already be going on. So perhaps they have a point there, but <laughs> that, that doesn't exactly leave us with uh, the best of options to say, well – Regulation doesn't work, therefore we should have no regulation, and that's the best we can possibly do. Um, before we close out our segment, I do want to paint 
what is the apocalyptic future? So if the FCC rules badly on this, mm-hmm. the internet fast lane goes into place, the providers that currently have money and power are able to lock in their advantage by paying to play and paying to privilege their content. What happens in 10 years? What does the media landscape look like? The nightmare situation is that you sort of get a consortium of huge companies that are both uh, content providers and carriers, and they basically have monopoly power over both what you can access at any sort of reasonable speed, like video, for example, and how much you pay for it. So that, uh, for instance, one of the stories that's coming up this week is putting bandwidth caps on on services where they're saying, well, if you want, if you go over a certain number of gigs a month, you're going to start paying $10 per every 50 gigs you go beyond that. And as resolution on content increases, you could end up paying something on the order of $10 per every stream movie or something because there will be that much surcharge on uh, high bandwidth content. And you won't have choices as far as either carrier or content provider goes, because if some new startup wants to provide video, they will not be able to afford to pay the carrier, who is also the content provider, to carry their stuff. And the carrier slash content provider will just basically rule the roost and stifle any sort of competition whatsoever. You will effectively get a de facto monopoly, both of content providers and carriers. It makes me think that if this were to come to pass, right, if the nightmare scenario goes forward, we would look back on this era of internet openness as a funny, strange, anomalistic flowering, right? Like if you think of other cultural producers, right? There's like Hollywood movies and then there's the indies and can the indies get to you and who are the distribution networks and, you know, where's your local landmark sunshine cinema that's going to get you the special good stuff that's not being brought out by the big power machines. I can imagine a world where I don't know what, do you have to sign up for some kind of indie ISP that's going to promise to privilege the the small ball players and you're going to have to pay for it. It, it, just, it just seems like we might, it seems like we might realize we'd been taking for granted the true strengths of the internet. For all we complain about, it's cat videos and it's eye-numbing properties. The the openness of it and the fact that literally anyone can say anything and their voice can reach everybody on the entire planet is marvelous. It's a really marvelous and and special privilege about it. It's horrifying to me that it's under threat. I think that's a really good point and I think internet activists have been actually saying that for for some years now, saying that you do have this odd situation in which you had an infrastructure that was remarkably open because of the odd circumstances in which it's created. And basically from the moment it became commercialized and corporatized, they've been trying to shut it down. And if you compare, say, mobile networks to the internet, you can see sort of just how how much more difficult things get when you have a fragmented network that's owned by different people and how that limits consumer choice and how that limits the, uh, the barrier that how that raises the barriers of entry for people who are trying to enter this space all right david thank you so much for coming on to talk about net neutrality david will you stick around and endorse with us sure all right now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana, what have you got today? I'm going to endorse a web series called Catherine that stars the comedian and actress Jenny Slate, who I actually interviewed last week because I'm profiling her for New York Magazine. And in the process of 
researching Jenny Slate, I came across this YouTube series, or it's, I found it on YouTube anyway, that seemed to have very few hits for something by, you know, sort of such an up-and-coming star compared to some of her other initiatives that had gone viral, like her Marcel the Shell. I don't know if you're familiar with that, a really fun little uh, stop-motion animated video she did, which is great, too. But Catherine is something that's almost in the realm of the avant-garde. It's this 12-part web series. Each segment is very short, sometimes as short as a minute and a half, up to maybe three or four minutes long. And it tells a story that I won't give away right now, but it tells this very strange and hard-to-read story about a young woman at an office and the encounters that she has when she goes back to work at this office that she used to work at but had left for some mysterious reason in the past. And the main thing that's remarkable about Catherine, to me, which was directed, by the way, by Jenny Slate's husband, Dean Fleischer Camp, who also co-wrote it with her, is its tone. It's a very undecidable, strange ominous sort of tone in which nothing terrible ever happens, but it always seems that something terrible is about to. And it also has this sort of bland neutrality. It's not quite awkward office humor of the sort we see in the office and so forth. It's more like, I don't know, a sort of um, a, a theater of banality or something like that. It's very hard to describe the tone that it hits, but it's very cool and interesting. And once you start watching it, you really can't stop, even though it's almost the opposite of a cliffhanger. Each episode is more boring and banal <laughs> than the last, and yet it seems to be creating some mysterious universe that you want to understand. So I hope I haven't over-explained it and oversold it, but go watch Catherine with Jenny Slate on YouTube. I'm very excited. June, what do you have? Well, I'm so inspired by this net neutrality uh, discussion that I'm actually going to change my endorsement. And I'm going to endorse something very, in a way, very homemade and something that could only uh, prosper in this open internet that we have. I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Some like Slates are very professional. And of course, I listen to BBC and NPR uh, podcasts. But I also love some very kind of bespoke podcasts, like two of the ones that I'm particularly fond of are the Pen Addict podcast, uh, which is, you know, just about pens and <laughs> every week. And they're on episode 107. And every week they talk about pens for 45 minutes to an hour. And it's magnificent. And it's not the kind of thing you would hear on the BBC, not by a long chart, but I love it. Sometimes I, I kind of recently started to listen to them and I have caught up on all 107 over the last couple of weeks. And sometimes if I can't sleep, I'm up at like 2 a.m. just downloading have another one. Have they done one. Sharpies? Um, they are now on a really big fountain pen binge, which I actually find slightly tiresome because, yeah, fountain pens. I'm, I'm, I mean, I like fountain pens, but it's not really my jam. But um, how about the Pilot Uniball? Oh my God, they're always they they they're not fond of the Pilot Uniball, but they have spent a lot, quite a lot of time on it. My goodness, but, I can't even think of an argument against the Pilot Uniball. Well, you should listen to the the Pen Addict <laughs> podcast, All and right. then another one, Erasable, is a pencil podcast, and they <laughs> are really into specific kind of pencils, which is wood pencils, but I can't remember the specific tone that they use for pencils that are encased in wood, uh, but it, it's also very good. That's, that's a pretty new one. They're only on episode five, and they're every two weeks, but really good stuff. Writing implement podcasts. Mm -hmm. This is the sort of thing that you must strike a blow for. This is why <laughs> protecting net neutrality. Exactly. It's true. What if the ISPs were to shut down the pencil and pen podcasts of our time? <laughs> Where would we the be? cultural flowering. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> amazing. Those sound very good. David, what's your endorsement this week? My endorsement is for a brilliant British conspiracy thriller called Utopia. It was written by Dennis Kelly, who was responsible for uh, the book of the musical of Matilda, Roald Dahl's book. Um, this is considerably darker than anything he's done before, and it... Uh, 
has to do with uh, the sort of the hunt for a MacGuffin around a comic book that was put together by an insane scientist who had worked on some bizarre eugenic project uh, in the 70s and 80s. And anyone who's had anything to do with it is dying in horrible ways. The series is currently being remade by Netflix, uh, and, being, and the author of that is Gillian Flynn, the author of Gone Girl. Uh, and um, it is just a fabulous thriller that takes very unexpected twists and turns, has a great deal of wit and a great deal of darkness, and uh, is just superior to, I think, I mean, it crushes Homeland into the ground, I would say, and anything of that kind. Uh, you should be able to find it on DVD, and uh, I highly recommend it to anyone looking for something different and something uh, dark and something funny, as well as fans of Kelly's earlier series, Pulling, which was sort of the uh, acidic proto-broad city uh, in the UK, which I also highly recommend. All right. My endorsement this week is a newsletter that I've just discovered. I read an interview with Corey Sika, who's the internet habitue and co-founder of The All and general sayer of smart things. And he said that he always reads something called Today in Tabs, which is a daily newsletter of all the tabs that you open and maybe don't get around to reading, right? I mean, this is my experience, and this is why I need broadband to be increased, is because I never have fewer than 43 tabs open in Chrome to the point where my computer doesn't work, and everybody who comes into my office makes fun of me, and I'm always swearing at the machine. But I want to read all the things in those tabs. Today in Tabs is a newsletter put together by a guy who is affiliated in some way I don't totally understand with Newsweek, but he writes a very funny, very voicey, it sort of feels like internet 2002 uh, in the tone it takes and the time it takes where he pulls together a bunch of I think the tabs he's encountered in the course of his day and describes them in an entertaining way so uh, Google today and tabs sign up for it it's been coming to my inbox for the past few days he's been very funny analytic and acidic about the various waves and counterwaves of Jill Abramson coverage and he always throws in a few funny videos at the end uh, so I'm enjoying it. It's fun to have a, a Virgil through the tabs of the internet. Today in tabs. All right. Well, that's our show for the week. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. June, thanks so much for sitting in in Steve's absence. Oh, my pleasure. Dana, thank you. As ever. <laughs> As ever. We have made it to the end <laughs> of the podcast. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Don't forget to sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash cultureplus. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. And our Twitter feed is Slate Cultfest. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. Well, now, let me tell you, people. Lord, I don't think of two. I just can't stand. I don't leave her where she do. She gonna miss me when I'm dead. Babe, I know you're gonna miss me. Child, when I'm dead.